0: So we'll sit for about five minutes, and then I'll explain a little bit about what I intend to do in this course. Okay, so let's begin. Um, this whole class, I think, is titled "Buddhist History for Buddhist Practitioners," and based on the kinds of things Mark and I talked about, it's not going to be so much a narrative history of Buddhism starting from day one and progressing through X number of years in terms of historical storyline. I've done that kind of course here at Common Ground, though it was. Quite a while back now. Uh, But in four weeks, we, well, we can't get too far in four weeks. But we talked more about um, history as um, an approach to studying Buddhism or history as part of the whole, uh, what Buddhism is about. And especially, Mark wanted me to talk about uh, fundamentalism and the growing tendency towards fundamentalism in all religions, but even in Buddhism, which is a little bit shocking. So this is going to be more about what history is than it is going to be starting with in this valley and moving up to the life of the Buddha and then moving on uh, to um, whatever, to the first uh, great schism, to the introduction of Mahayana or whatever. Uh, I have been teaching. Um, what I have been trying to do for many years I started out here in the Twin Cities. We didn't get too far here. Uh, what I've been trying to do for many years is introduce the notion of a nonsectarian and accurate history of Buddhism that would be taught at Dharma centers. And my original vision was to have it here in the Twin Cities, something that all of the sanghas would participate in. Um, but that has never happened. Sectarianism rears its head very quickly. Uh, If I teach at a Zen center, mainly Zen students come. If I teach at Common Ground, mainly Common Ground people come. Uh, And I started out doing this at the Shambhala Center. But um, things didn't work out well at all with the Shambhala Center. So I haven't been back there for many years. And then um, I was writing to my teacher. I wrote her an email. Um, I think this was maybe in 2005. I wrote her an email about this project of a nonsectarian and accurate history of Buddhism. So let's look at those two words, nonsectarian and accurate. Accurate obviously means what can be empirically documented. Because I think one of the things that a lot of more traditional approaches to Buddhism don't realize is that history is an empirical discipline. It's You have to be able to demonstrate that events actually, in fact, happened on the ground in ordinary space and time. And an awful lot of what gets narrated in Buddhist texts, it's kind of hard to believe it happened on the ground in ordinary historical space and time, um, somewhat in the Theravada narratives, uh, later Theravada narratives for sure. Uh, When you get to the Mahayana narratives, even more so. So accuracy mainly has to do with uh, an empirical, uh, factual history of Buddhism, unencumbered by the adornment of uh, symbolic narratives, mythology, miracle stories, all of those kinds of things. And nonsectarian, that's even more important. Because unfortunately, um, every form of Buddhism has its own version of Buddhist history. Uh, and yet if we have an, an accurate empirical history of Buddhism, there can only be one Buddhist history for all forms of Buddhism. There can't be a different Buddhist history for Theravada Buddhists than for Mahayana Buddhists. Though the narratives Theravadas tell and the narratives Mahayanas tell are quite different from one another. So that means that we have to go kind of behind both narratives to find out what the non-sectarian an accurate history might be. Now, I think this is really important because this is history. The study of history is a place where all the different forms of Buddhism can meet and work together, simply because there is only one accurate non-sectarian history of Buddhism for all forms of Buddhism. When we talk about doctrine or view, obviously there are somewhat different views in Buddhism different emphases. When we talk about meditation techniques, there are different meditation techniques. Um, There's this whole whole wealth of Vajrayana meditation techniques that seem to be virtually incomprehensible to most Zen and Theravada practitioners. It's just like, what what are those people doing? It seems so bizarre to outsiders. Uh, So in terms of, of view and meditation, There's a lot of diversity and variety within Buddhism. But for getting an accurate non-sectarian history of Buddhism, it has to be the same for all forms of Buddhism. This is an area where we could really work together. And it's a place where there could be some real meeting (coughs) between the various lineages and various forms of Buddhism. So. I wrote an email to my teacher, Jetson Khandur outlining this project I had been trying to do and you know, trying to build Sangha in the Twin Cities. Wouldn't it be great if all the Buddhist centers in the Twin Cities worked together on a project? Um, how is it that we can be such a small religion compared to Christianity or Judaism or Islam and still be so splintered and in so many fragments? Why? Why is it? And then a few weeks, <coughs> I don't know what's wrong with my throat tonight. A few weeks later, um, I, I was in India and uh, I was having an interview. I was talking with her and I asked her what she thought of that project. And I was thinking more in terms of bringing all the Sangas and the Twin Cities together to work on a single project. But she was more interested in the accurate non sectarian history. She said, I like it. And so I kind of thought for 30 seconds or so, and then I said to her, well, um, should we try it at Lotus Garden? Lotus Garden at that point was only a few years old. It's uh, near Stanley, Virginia, in the, in the Shenandoah Valley in the Blue Ridge. It's a very beautiful meditation center, um, like many other meditation centers, formerly a farm. Um, you know, a lot of work to put in infrastructure, not much housing. It's the whole same old story with meditation centers. So I said, should we try it at Lotus Garden? And she said, she thought for 30 seconds and said, yes. So, okay, we'll do that. And then about a week later, I was leaving India. And um, we were, the group of students that were together, we were at a restaurant in Delhi. She had taken us out to dinner. And she came to confer with me. Now, we are going to do this project, this, this history course at Lotus Garden. And I said, yeah, okay, we'll do it. And she went back to her table and I went to mine. Then I sat down and I thought, you know, Tibetans all think that the historical Buddha really did teach the Heart Sutra at Vulture Peak in Rajgriha. They actually think that's a historical event. And no historian of Buddhism thinks that's a historical event. So I got back up. I went to her table and I said to her Rinpoche, I have to make sure you understand that most Tibetans are going to think that what I'll be teaching is heresy. And she laughed. She just has a very hearty laugh when she's really intrigued or amused. She had this hearty laugh. And she kind of throws her head. And she said, oh, that'll be good for us. It'll make us think. So you can see what kind of a teacher I have. Um, It did turn out that... um, A lot of people were very upset with what I was teaching. Because I was, in fact, teaching that certain narratives that people had been taught were um, fact were not fact. They were something else. I was also trying to teach them the the fact that these narratives are not fact uh, in no way made them worthless. It just meant that they weren't fact. They weren't factual narratives. But it was—it really um, a whole lot of a whole lot of uproar broke out, and um, it's pretty much taken. I started that project. This is the fifth year I've done it, so I must have started it in 2006, 7, 8, 9, 10. No, I must have started it in 2007. Yeah, I must have started it in 2007. And all of this time, people, when we when we get away from um, the more bold statement that some of these narratives that are so dear to you are not in fact, they are legend. When we get away from that, people settle down. But then if I come back again to the notion that these stories are not fact, they're legend, people again just blow up. Now this summer I had a very interesting, a very interesting exchange. Uh, I was teaching some Mahayana sutras and I probably many most of you haven't read many Mahayana sutras, but they are really over the top in terms of um, events that it would be very hard to take as a factual narrative, as a historical narrative, and they are full of miracle stories. And I was thinking about well what you know what is what is this about? why were the, why were miracle stories so attractive? To Buddhists at a certain period in the development of Buddhist thought, because they really were. And um, I came up with the analogy that they were like, perhaps like science fiction is in our culture. It's something that is, you know, using what we know of science as a base, it's kind of an imaginative extension of what we can do now empirically. With physics and chemistry and the other hard sciences. And when we watch a science fiction movie, we know it's fiction, but it, it's many things at the same time. It's entertaining, but a lot of science fiction also has a lot of moral and spiritual teaching in it. Uh, I think especially, if, I don't watch a lot of science fiction, but I think especially of a movie that's a few years old now, Avatar. Which is obviously science fiction, but there's a whole lot more to it in the story than, um, than just nonsense. It's a tremendous amount of commentary on um, crude science and uh, ecology and the value of indigenous cultures and all sorts of things. Um, but it's also obviously fiction. We know that if they're present abilities, we can't do the things that are in a movie like Avatar. We know it. And yet we find we can get very absorbed in the movie. Uh, We can get the moral and spiritual lessons very easily. And at the same time, we are entertained, which is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to be sucked in and entertained by an absorbing story. So I suggested that perhaps the uh, more miraculous elements that come into a lot of Buddhist narratives, especially in Mahayana texts, were um, equivalent to science fiction in our culture, that they functioned in the same way in that time and place, that people had much the same attitude toward them, that they didn't take those miracle stories that are in, say, the Lotus Sutra uh, any more literally than we take Avatar that they took them in the same way. Um, and as I gave, this was an afternoon lecture. Got done with the lecture, went down to the coffee shop to have an ice cream. And I'm set upon by these people, one of whom was absolutely furious that I was again demeaning Buddhism because I used the word fiction about narratives in important Buddhist texts. How dare I use the word fiction of them. So after five years, that was a little bit discouraging. Um, On the other hand, some other very well-educated people said, oh, that was a great analogy. That was really helpful. So um, I don't know about that. Um, What I want to do in this course, I want to work through a few articles I've written. That's why I gave you one for tonight. I don't want to primarily just give lectures. I'd like to have you have read the articles, thought about them at least tonight, and um, hit on some points and have more discussion. So um, I've told a few stories already. Does anyone have any comments or anything to ask about the stories I've told thus far? about how how this course came to be and um, what we've done so far. I also taught it last winter. I taught nine lectures of it at Zen Mountain Monastery in upstate New York. So it's gotten to be a fairly long project. At Lotus Garden now, um, doing it in a narrative way, we're into the Mahayana Sutras. And I imagine I'll be spending quite a bit of time going through Mahayana Sutras one by one. Uh, One of the things I'm most interested in this accurate non-sectarian history of Buddhism is what was at stake in the origins of Mahayana? What were the issues? And how, because the biggest sectarianism in Buddhism is always between the Mahayana and the Theravada or mainstream movements within Buddhism. And each side talks right past the other. Each side has historical narratives that completely invalidate the other side. So that's particularly the the point that um, I wanted to get at and wanted to say something about. Um, I think I've gotten some fairly clear handles on why Mahayana originated that are not part of the most standard histories of Buddhism. So at Lotus Garden, we're now past that point. But what I'm going to be doing at Lotus Garden for the next few years, even though we're into Mahayana sutras is to keep teaching, uh, as long as I can keep it going anyway, some later classic Theravada material. Because most Mahayanists think that once Mahayana happened, that the rest of Buddhism died out, or somehow went underground, or wasn't. They don't know anything about like They never read Buddha Gosha, just like you people never read Nagarjuna. So they're going to be reading Buddha Gosha next next summer, the year after next summer. Next summer we're going to do the Katavatu. The Book of Controversies. And in this class, I want to spend some time. I've got a lecture coming up towards the end, called Should Theravadans Be Afraid of Nagarjuna? The great Mahayana, supposedly Mahayana Buddhist philosopher. So that's a kind of where it's come from and where I hope it's going, what I want to do in this class. Yes?
1: How do you find out exactly what's empirical?
0: How do you find out exactly what's you know empirical? Well, um things that that we do not normally expect to happen, in other words, by and large, miracle stories can immediately be thrown out. Um, anything that can be documented from external Buddhist sources is very good. that's going to be uh, things that are documented in multiple sources, things that can be found archaeologically so um You know, when push comes to shove, because the Pali suttas were not written down for so long, uh, it's in fact very hard to find the exact historical core of what the historical Buddha taught. So um, just about everything that we have, it's very hard to find the exact historical core. We can find the dates of Nagarjuna. Um, We can go from there. But, um, and then, then we have to, you know, we always have to make some guesses as to what seems likely to have happened and what probably didn't happen as, a, as an empirical fact. Now one thing, in my view, that probably didn't happen as an empirical fact is the whole narrative in the Heart Sutra of, of Shakyamuni Buddha promoting a dialogue between Avalokiteshvara and Shariputra. Which one may go into that later on. Um, Things like that have very little probability of being a historical event. And since that's such a, the Mahayana Buddhists find that such an important founding narrative, it's been very hard on Mahayana Buddhists to give that up as an empirical story. Uh, However, you know, Theravadins, the problem for Theravadins is. Assuming that if the historical Buddha didn't teach it, then it's without value, which is in the article tonight, that uh, any living religion changes. So why do you stop at a certain point? You say, anything that happened after this point, we don't have to take seriously. (coughs) Which is, in fact, kind of the Theravada position, that anything that happened after a certain point of time, that's not the word of the Buddha. so we don't have to take that seriously. We don't need to study anything Mahayana, or uh, even the works of Nagarjuna. Yes?
1: How much outright fiction is there in the Theravada tradition?
0: I think there's quite a bit.
1: Could you give an example or two? Or like a really clar- a
2: glaring example?
0: Um, well, I don't know if you want to consider the, the biographies of the Buddha as Theravada or pan-Buddhists most of the events in the the standard biographies of the Buddha that we always read. Certainly, um, you know, a conceived white elephant. um, The begging bowl floating upstream instead of down the river. you know, those narratives, but everybody agrees that the standard biographies of the Buddha that we have, that we always use, that everybody uses, mm-hmm. whether the Mahayana or Theravada, that those were, those narratives post-date the Buddha by quite a
1: bit. Well, and what you, about the suttas
0: themselves? The suttas themselves, whether <clears throat> because they were written down so much after the life and death of Shakyamuni, it's hard to know... Which in those are the actual historic words that were probably spoken by the Buddha, and which ones are uh, added on later? Um, you know, there's a lot of the text analysis isn't very advanced yet in Buddhist studies. But um, for example, if you if you read the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. Um, you can pick out passages in it that very clearly seem to be later interpolations. Because the Buddha will say, Ananda is very upset. The Buddha is getting old and sick and dying. And the Buddha will say, Ananda, haven't I taught you over and over that everything that is compounded is impermanent and will fall apart again? And um, and, then Ananda says, yes. And then there's a narrative where, where Mara comes to Buddha and says, "Isn't it time for you to die?" And Buddha says, um, "Because I now have disciples in all four um, of all four orders that are accomplished and able to teach the Dharma, it is appropriate. I, I can now die; it would be okay." But then, as he as he's ill and dying, and Ananda is so upset about this, there's a whole interpolated incident where Buddha says to, to Ananda. I hinted to you many times that I could have lived forever if you had just asked me to. But you didn't take the hint. <laughs> and this narrative goes on and on about how stupid Ananda didn't take the hint and the Buddha could have lived forever if only he had been or at least for for the rest of the Kalpa, if only he had been requested to do so. So there was in a single narrative you see events that are very clearly probably have the, have some real historical resonance. I think it's much more likely the Buddha said, don't you understand everything compounded will fall apart, than, they, than he would have said, I could have lived for the rest of the eon if only you had asked. Uh, another very good example um, in, the, in the Pali literature, not necessarily the suttas, but in the Pali literature, very famous narrative about how Mahaprajapati and the women of her court um, were asked to be ordained, and Buddha refused, so they cut their hair and put on robes and followed the Buddha anyway. And they came to where he was staying and asked again if they could be ordained, and uh, they were turned down three times. And then Ananda finally interceded with the Buddha and said, You know, is it possible for women to become enlightened? Buddha said, Yes. Um, so, Ananda said, Well, then why won't you let them live the lifestyle that is so helpful to men? So, the Buddha finally relented, but he made he then, according to this narrative, he then instituted the eight heavy rules that forever subordinate every nun to every monk, any monk. And he also said, Now the Dharma is only going to last 500 years instead of a 1,000. That whole text, which has had such a devastating impact for women in Buddhism and for nuns in Buddhism, very clearly seems to be quite a late interpolation into the narrative. Why would the Buddha have said in so many places that he has a Sangha that consists of the four orders, monks, nuns, lay men, lay women, as just normal? That's just the normal. That's the way things are. Why would he have said that so many times? If in fact he had been so reluctant to let women uh, ordain and become nuns. So it seems that, um, you know, some, um, I suppose we could say misogynist, some anti woman monk at a certain point, probably four or five hundred years after the life and death of Buddha, you know, remember that in the ancient world, books were not bound and the pages were not numbered and they were hand copied. So it isn't that hard for somebody to, you know, we write in the margins of our books, right? (laughs) Then the next copyist comes along and copies the marginal note in. And if the right manuscript of the marginal notes gets the one that's copied, it's pretty easy for texts to be altered. There's been a lot of such scholarship in the New Testament as well suggesting in many cases, both for Christianity and Buddhism, that some of them are anti-women passages were added in later. So those are a couple of examples of what the kind of work we do when we look for an accurate and non-sectarian history. And don't take on faith anything that has been traditionally, oh, this is it. In other words, we're very questioning of. the traditional narratives. That's just part of the modern historical attitude. Now, modern history, I believe, is quite different from traditional narratives. And I actually think that modern historical studies are more difficult for religions to accommodate than modern science, perhaps more so for Buddhism. Yes?
1: At the time of Jesus, there was at least What you could call historians or anecdotalists, stretching from Alexandria all the way around the coastlines to uh, Rome, writing their stories about what was happening in the Middle East. And not a single one of them mentioned Jesus. And so uh, I've come to believe that there was no such thing as an of Jesus. Meanwhile, in India, my understanding is
2: that they didn't have historians like that. It, his, history wasn't something that people kept track of ahead of the time that the Buddha was around. So, right. so how do we even know that there was an historical Buddha? I mean,
0: well, you stressful. know, uh, people often ask that question. Um, on the one hand, I would say that um, if, if Dharma is true or valid or works, it doesn't matter whether there's a historical Buddha or not.
1: That's
0: my on the other hand, I see no reason to doubt that there's some historical kernel or core of someone who was the originator of the basic uh, Buddha Dharma. Um, I see no reason to doubt the historical core. But if you, if you do, I don't, I don't think that's all that important. Um, I think a lot of the legends are uh, accretions, but I see no reason to doubt there was such a person. Uh, it would be a very odd story to make up whole cloth, just as I think the story of Jesus would be a very odd story to make up whole cloth. Um, but on the other hand, you know, we don't for sure know the, the dates of the historical Buddha. That's something that um, the traditional date that you always get in a college class on Buddhism was dated on the based on the Sri Lankan chronicles, and uh, it says in the Sri Lankan we can date Ashoka. And it says in, the, in both the northern sources and the southern sources, both the, the Sri Lankan Pali sources and Mahayana sources in Sanskrit, that there were about five generations between the death of the Buddha and the time of Ashoka. And the Sri Lankan chronicles place that at about 200 years, which is way too long for five generations. So modern Japanese and many Western scholars have. Pushed the dates of the Buddha forward by about a hundred years, which I, I agree with, though it's not important. I mean, there's a sense in which Buddhism is centered on Dharma. I'll probably, by the way, use Sanskrit terms rather than Pali a lot because I tend to work in Sanskrit, um, Sanskrit language more. Uh, you know, Dharma is central. If Dharma didn't hold up, it wouldn't matter if there had been a historical Buddha or not. And if Dharma does hold up, it doesn't matter so much whether there's a historical Buddha or not. But I don't see any reason to doubt that there was a, a person. And in a certain sense, it's important for Dharma because the Buddha, as example, that a human being in a human body can become enlightened that it is possible that this this human potential holds a lot of promise. If there there was no person who actually had the, the experience of waking up and then taught what he had to teach, I think that does cast some doubt on, well, did people just make up this dharma and nobody ever actually experienced enlightenment? They just told stories about it. That would make the whole thing a little more shaky, in my view.
2: Yes? I uh, looked at all the mutations of fundamentalism within Buddhism. Do you find or have you found both the Mahayana and the Theravada traditions in terms of the Jataka tales? In terms of what? The, uh, Jataka Jitaka tales? In the previous life, uh, do you find that most Buddhists take those literally much as a lot of the uh, fundamentalist Christians take uh, 4, yeah. to the 4,000 BC and yeah. the Garden of Eden, are literal stories.
0: Well, I taught an online. Can you, can
2: you, yeah, you I repeat the question, please? Yes. Yeah.
0: Do uh, people, do Buddhists take the Jataka tales literally? Just like Christians take it literally, that there was about 4,000 years between the creation of the world and the time of Jesus. Is that a fair paraphrase? Yeah,
1: or the Garden of Eden. Or the Garden of Eden.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I know I haven't conducted any research on Buddhist attitudes about the Jataka stories, but last summer I taught an online retreat uh, for Tricycle of uh, four short videotaped lectures that people watched. On their computer, and then they sent in questions that I replied to. (laughs) And this distinction that I was making between history and story, uh, one person picked up on it, and it was kind of troubling to her. And she asked me, Was it the case that the Jataka stories were just stories? She was, you know, like, Oh no, please don't tell me those are just stories. Because listen, what's this word just? It's such a diminishing word. That it's just a story. You're saying it's not as valuable as if it's history, as if it's factual. And that's one of the things I'm challenging altogether in this material I'm doing in Buddhist history for Buddhist practitioners. But I did have to tell her that the Jataka tales were, oh, everybody, everybody agrees on this, that they're a fairly late Edition. They're in the fifth nikaya by and large. They're not in the early earlier nikayas, and um, they collect all sorts of folklore from all over India and put them into, you know, into nice stories. Um, you know, I haven't. I'm not an expert on the Pali Canon by any means, but I've spent a good bit of time studying it now, and I do think you can see if you if you study the Nikayas one after another, that there are earlier layers and later layers uh, in the texts that were collected uh, in the Nikayas. And that certain themes, at a certain point, you get themes in some of the Nikayas. Suddenly, there's a very prominent theme, like the question, do we practice mainly for self or for other, which just isn't there at all in many other uh, of of the Pali suttas. And I think that probably reflects a growing uh, you know a growing question that eventually led to the split between Mahayana and Theravada Buddhism uh, you also see the terms shamata and Vipassana suddenly cropping up whereas other texts talk a lot more about uh, mindfulness and Samadhi sati and Samadhi not about uh, Shamata and Vipassana so um you know, it's it's endlessly, there's endless speculation and work to be done. But one of the primary points I'm trying to do is to loosen us up from um, the grip that traditional narratives have on us <laughs> and the um, the shock that people experience when some of their most beloved traditional narratives are questioned. Why is that so shocking? So what I did in this article that um, we looked at tonight, there's an introduction. And because it's such a central narrative for Mahayana Buddhists, and I've been teaching in a Mahayana context, I often uh, center my comments about story and history around the Heart Sutra and the story in the Heart Sutra. So since this is not a Mahayana group, I'll briefly describe that text. uh, And then I'll go on to talk about the other points I want to make. The Heart Sutra is a very short text uh, in the Prajnaparamita literature, the literature on transcendent wisdom, which begun, started, they started to be writing these sutras. Maybe uh, the earliest possible date is about 100 before the Common Era, which would be three to 400 years after the life of the Buddha. And for Mahayanists, this literature is um, definitive and um, supersedes The older literature of the Pali Suttas. And for Mahayanists, suddenly, you know, if they're going to have this whole new class of literature, the Prajnaparamita Sutras, uh, which are claimed to be the authentic teachings of the Buddha, where did they come from? What Mahayanists say is that the Buddha taught this material to a select group of disciples or to a whole group of disciples at Vulture Peak, which you were asking about earlier, at Vulture Peak, Rajgriha, which is in Bihar, India, um, not too far from Buddhaya and Nalanda. And it is probably, undoubtedly a place where Buddha did hang out with his disciples and did teach. I see no reason to doubt that. But the Buddha would teach the, this Prajnaparamita literature uh, fundamentally about emptiness, uh, that he would teach this in Rajgriha and that um, his students became very shocked at these teachings. A lot of students became very shocked at the teachings. Uh, They thought that they understood everything the Buddha had to say, but they were shocked at these teachings. That's often a motif. In Mahayana Sutras, the Buddha is represented as saying, I've been teaching for all this time, but I have not yet revealed my my real secrets or the real teachings. And he revealed these teachings. Everybody was totally freaked out. Whereupon the historical Buddha—this is the way the Mahayanas see it—whereupon the historical Buddha realized that people weren't yet ready to hear these teachings, so they had to be hidden, and they were hidden uh, with the Nagas, which are uh, mythical. Well mythical to us, real to some people. Uh, Mythical creatures who have a human top and a snake bottom. And they live in the oceans and the rivers. They're watery creatures. So Buddha gave these texts to to, to the Nagas for safekeeping until the human community would have progressed to the point that they'd be able to understand the teachings a little more deeply. So you can see here in this story an extreme sectarian approach, can't you? That that these teachings which we now have are the word of the Buddha. They supersede the older texts, and they are superior teachings, um, which has been, you know, a Mahayana line for the past 2,000 years. So. Um, In the Heart Sutra, which is very short, the Buddha is at Rajgriha with Shariputra and Avalokiteshvara. Avalokiteshvara is a Mahayana Bodhisattva. And Shariputra, you all know who Shariputra is, the Buddha's foremost disciple for wisdom. And um, actually, Shariputra, it's very funny to watch Mahayana Sutras, because in Mahayana Sutra, Shariputra is always the one who doesn't know what's going on. (laughs) And he's always making a fool out of himself. So Shariputra asks Avalokiteshvara for instruction. And Avalokiteshvara teaches him very famous lines. I think that this is something worth knowing, period. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Emptiness is no other than form. Form is no other than emptiness. And then it goes on and from there. uh, Perhaps the most famous single lines in Mahayana Buddhism. So that's the story of the Heart Sutra. And for many Mahayana Buddhists, this is the founding narrative of Buddhism, or at least of Mahayana Buddhism. They were taught, I mean, my friends were all taught, that this was the historical Buddha, that this was an empirical event, that that's where Mahayana came from. So along comes Professor Rita and says, no, that didn't happen until about that. First of all, that text was written in about the 8th century after after about, uh, so I would put it 8th, put it about, 11, 1200 years after the Buddha, the text itself wasn't written until about the 8th century CE, and the events narrated in it are not empirical events. So, um, you know, the roof caved in for for many people at that point. I think it would be equivalent to um, some Theravada teachers saying, you know, we really do need to start taking we do need to start studying the Mahi, Mahayana sutras seriously. We can't assume that just because they're later, that therefore they're invalid. So from now on, we're going to take the Mahayana Sutra seriously. We no longer believe the myth that um, everything that's important about Buddhism happened during the lifetime of the Buddha and his teachings, and that nothing could be added to his teachings later on. Be about the same equivalent uh, shock value. So, um, you know, the first year I just sort of hinted at that. Uh, The second year we got into it seriously. And one of my fellow senior teachers uh, said to me, How could I doubt that this was a historical narrative given that I had actually been at Rajgriha myself? Where's the logic? You have been at Rajgriha. How can you doubt that this is a historical narrative? And it was like, I was like, what's going on here? (laughs) Then, um, And I also was told, you should drop this whole project. It's too upsetting to people. So is fundamentalism alive and well in Buddhism or not? Later on that summer, I got an email saying one of the senior, te- senior practitioners had left residence at Lotus Garden because of things I had taught. And what had I taught that was, would cause such doubt? Well, I assumed that it was because I was teaching the difference between history and story and suggesting that what people had taken to be history was story. Now, my point is that it doesn't make, to call something a story doesn't make it less valuable but it is differentiating there is history which is based as far as as much as we can do it on empirical knowledge and story which it doesn't matter what it's based on stories have a different function and stories have a very important function uh, in religion but why had this student left residence at lotus garden because he now thought that buddhism was no truer than christianity Because previously, he had come to doubt all the Christian stories about the virgin birth of the Garden of Eden or whatnot. And if Buddhist stories were no truer than Christian stories, then there was no point in being a Buddhist either. Um, Mainly, his problem was that he didn't understand the value of story. And he didn't understand the distinction between story and history which is a modern distinction. But for us, I think it's also an unavoidable distinction. I think it's absolutely unavoidable for those of us who live in the paradigm of the European Enlightenment, after the European Enlightenment, a paradigm in which we are completely oriented towards empiricism and towards facts. And we cannot help but live in that paradigm. It's everything in our culture, everything in our educational system teaches us to regard fact and truth as synonymous. And we have a very, very hard time seeing the truth of stories or the truth in stories. We have a very hard time seeing symbolism and metaphor as true not empirically true, true in a different kind of way. So as I say at some point in this article, when you really get that distinction, something, a, a narrative could be both true and false at the same time. It can be false as an empirical history. It can be true as a symbolic or a metaphorical teaching. And I think there's that. That in many ways, that's the nub. That's the important point to get, that what we call true and what we call false, those are very slippery terms. That the same narrative could be false because it didn't happen that way, and true because of the meaning the story communicates. And in many ways, that's where fundamentalism comes from, is insisting that no... It's only valuable if it's factually, empirically true. That's why school boards all over the country are always fighting about wanting to teach, quote unquote, creation science as a science. Because the creation story couldn't have any value unless it is an empirical fact. And what people don't understand is that that's, that heavy emphasis on facticity is something that only came into prominence with the European Enlightenment, from 161700 on. Before that, people were by and large not heavy-duty empiricists. In other words, they didn't define truth as empirical fact. But once you start defining truth as empirical fact, um, you know, religion has to has to I mean that's our paradigm. So religion has to somehow get a grip on how to maintain um, how to how to maintain traditional narratives without regarding them as historical facts. If you insist on regarding them as historical facts, you turn into a fundamentalist. if you turn into a fundamentalist, um, then you usually also make exclusive truth claims. Um, You think there's only one true religion, and all sorts of other things follow along. <clears throat> okay, I'm not getting into going through this article, but that's okay. Are there any? This is such an important point. Are there any comments about what I've said? I saw people starting to take notes, which is good. Yes. Well, I got something
2: that might be somewhat related. Um, from what you know about the, uh, you know, the royal families in India at the time, they typically have been no. slaveholders?
0: Would they typically have been what?
2: Slaveholders.
0: Um, prob- yeah, probably. Yes. Now, <clears throat> now, Buddha, we know, I mean, in terms of any historical core, I think this is probably accurate that Buddha, um, Buddha I, the way I like to put it is that Buddha actually created a counterculture. The monastic Sangha was a counterculture that was completely quite different from the the secular culture of his day. Um, and Buddha was not, in my view, particularly a social reformer. You, you, conventional society can do whatever it wants to. We will have our sangha, where we do things in a way that is conducive to non-return, to uh, the deathless. But the conventional society, yeah, I'm sure they have, had slaves. There was another question?
2: Published,
0: uh, archaeologically, what we know, um, from... There's quite a bit um, from, uh, you know, from the time of the historical Buddha. Very little, but um, you know, uh, his birthplace, Lumbini. Ashoka put Ashoka visited all of the major spots that were important in the Buddha's life. In the, in the narratives in the uh, Mahaparinibbana Sutta, after the Buddha dies and he's cremated, his uh, relics are divided into eight parts and taken to eight different places. And Ashoka visited, and the four major ones are uh, Lumbini, where he was born, Gaya, where he was enlightened, Sarnath, where he preached the first sermon, and Kushinagara, where he died. And Ashoka visited those places, you know, roughly 100 years later. So that means there could still easily be fairly accurate memory and placed plaques and um, other markers in those spots. And those have been found and that writing on them has been deciphered. And there are lots of, you know, reasonably old Buddhist places in India that have been um, discovered and uncovered again. Um Sanchi is pretty old. the foundations of Sanchi, the great stupa uh, in western India is pretty old. Um, but there's you know the person who said that Indians didn't Indians have never been good at history, and so um you know they didn't keep monuments of. This is exactly what happened during this time. They didn't do documentaries the way we do. They just didn't do documentaries. I think the whole notion of a documentary is part of that paradigm shift of the European enlightenment when you want to know when history becomes an empirical science. And it is no longer just a story. But it's empirical science, and it's important to separate you know, fact from legend. George Washington. I think we've we know now George Washington never did chop down the cherry tree. <laughs> but it certainly is a legend that colors our national psyche. That's the kind of thing you do with history as an empirical science. That's why a lot of people don't like it because it, you know, seems to debunk some of our favorite um, stories. Yes. I mean, you know, Jesus wasn't really born. In zero, he was born in 4 BC. <laughs> and he obviously wasn't born on the 25th of December. That was the birthday of the Roman god, Mithra. And it was an important holiday in the Greco-Roman world. So you co-opt the important holiday by having Jesus' birthday compete with it on the same day, etc., etc. And you can imagine teaching at the university how my students hated to hear this stuff.
1: Um, you're talking about like Indians not paying that much attention to history and also the paradigm shift in the Enlightenment. Are you also, um, it almost seems like you're talking about linear versus cyclical history.
0: Yeah, history is linear. And the Indian um, the Indian uh, view of history is that it's cyclic. But the cycles are so huge. And within a huge cycle, you still have linear time. But
1: within a system that that empirical historical view is more important
0: than the cyclical history? Yeah, there well because we have no evidence whatsoever that there are yugas and that the world is created and destroyed many times over, an empirical historian pays no attention whatsoever to Indian versions of cyclic time. But in that mindset,
1: if you are following cyclical history actual historical
0: points of reference don't have no real importance? Um, no, as I said, within, if, you have, if you have a huge cycle of history, within that cycle there's still linear time. Because the, the, the cyclic view of time, both Hindu and Buddhist, includes very much the notion of degeneration as we move along the straight line. And the golden age was in the past, and uh, you know this is the worst, last of the 500-year dark eras," uh, said so quote one of the Tibetan chants. But that you know there's a Buddhist view found in many many forms of Buddhism that things are getting worse, and um, so that is a very linear notion of time that things are getting worse. The justifications for some of the quote-unquote easier forms of Buddhism is that In our degenerate times, we can't practice anymore the way people could during the Buddhist time. So we have to rely on easier, skillful means. Um, So we still have linear time. Um, The the units of cyclic time in Buddhism are so big as, in my mind, to be irrelevant. Um, When when people talk about reinstituting the nun's order, and uh, the Tibetans say, "Well, we can't figure out how to do it. We have to wait for the next Buddha to come. And when the next Buddha comes, then they'll reinstitute the nuns' order." Like to me, that's so far in the future that it's just so far in the future as to be irrelevant. We need to do something now about the nuns' order. So, um, you know, I, I just don't think that that Cyclic time functions in any real way in our lives. But one of the ways to indicate how little uh, Indians pay attention to history is that even though Buddhism was a major religion in India f- for, you know, 1500 years, once Buddhism was almost completely destroyed in India in the 13th century, from the 13th century to the 19th century, when the British started looking for um, evidence of Buddhism, Buddhism altogether had been just about forgotten in India. It have been like people people didn't know that there had even been this religion in India. Uh, most of the Buddhist monuments were completely grown over. Ajanta had been lost. Nobody. Not, not even they didn't even have records of Ajanta and places like that. So um, that perhaps does tie in with the with the view that the empirical world is um, Maya, is illusory, and that the real thing is is behind the phenomenal world. Uh, thoughts you back there? Um, I'm just curious, what type of, for
2: the cycles, what type of order I've been talking
0: about. I know Chris answered this question, right? How long? Um, lots of zeros. Lots and lots of yeah, zeros. I can't I can't tell you off the top of my head how many zeros. But um, many, many more than our national debt. <laughs> it's big.
2: Do you think because of the cyclical view of nature, you there's really no, emphasis on Buddhist eschatology that you see like, in Christianity with this emphasis on the Maitreya Buddha coming and setting things straight Where you know, look at how strong within pretty much all sects of Christianity, the second coming is, mm-hmm. is emphasized, yeah. and Buddhism you don't see that though, emphasis in, 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 in the sects of the Maitreya Buddha in the Mahayana tradition of coming to, to set things straight, kind of that future-looking, golden age, too, mm-hmm. about well, the question,
0: the question is about whether cyclic time prohibits or diminishes emphasis on eschatology. Is that a fair paraphrase for people who can't hear? Um, well, those, the, whole, the whole thing about the end times in eschatology actually comes originally from Zoroastrianism. And there are elements in Buddhism that pick up on that. But you're right. They're not dominant. Um, This Maitreya, the the idea grew fairly quickly in Buddhism, as far as I know, that because the historical Buddha, a human being, became enlightened, it was possible for others to do so as well. And that there were past and would be future Buddhas that idea came into Buddhism fairly early. Um, but you're right that Maitreya, there isn't the same eschatological second coming kind of emphasis. It's just that things will degenerate. What is always said in Buddhism is that there cannot, ar- or at least in Theravada Buddhism, not in Mahayana, in Theravada Buddhism, it's said that another Buddha will not arise until the teachings of a Buddha have been completely forgotten. So at a certain point in time, that's part of the degeneration. At a certain point in time, the teachings of the historical Buddha uh, will have been completely forgotten. And then it will be time for a new Buddha to come and again discover the teachings. Because for Theravada, the definition of a Buddha is that one discovers the the Dhamma without the aid of a teacher. That's what makes a Buddha as opposed to an Arhat. Whereas in Mahayana, that distinction that isn't that isn't the definition of a Buddha. Uh, So there are many more Buddhas in Mahayana than in Theravada. Um, Okay? Yes.
2: Well, it it would seem to me some of the terms we've been using around um, the Indians, which is kind of problematic in and of itself. um, I think there's just a different understanding of. History and the way history works.
0: Mm-hmm, there is. And
2: and it, 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 it's I think one of the problems with modern Western Buddhism, one of the issues with modern Western Buddhism, is trying to reconcile different understandings of history and times and events. And we live in this globalized culture now, where we have this post Enlightenment Western mind coexisting with other cultures that view and understand time and history. In very different ways, and in the West, it's essentially a petri dish where we're experimenting with it. And we, as Westerners, I myself, <laughs> grappling with, okay, how much of the package do I have to buy in order to get the kernel of truth? Versus, but then the other side, and this is sort of the question I would pose to you because you've mentioned the importance of story truth. How then um, do you see story truth continuing as we go forward? Um, to be a part of the Dharma and the teaching that's in this emerging Western okay, culture. I think,
0: I think that the traditional stories have 100% validity as teaching. They just aren't empirical history. And um, I think I'm going to have to, uh, the talk I want to give next week, probably I can really give some examples of this so that people start to see that. But there is such a bias. Because of the paradigm we live in, there is such a bias about a story that is, quote, just a story. We say, we always put that word just in front of it, which is a very diminutive word. Or as some of my students, when we would talk about deity and symbolism, and they would say, You mean that's only a symbol? You <laughs> know, somehow that it was like, what else could what could what could be more profound than a symbol? you can you can never um, you know, pull those profound subtle truths down into uh, empirical uh, you know objects. You just can't do it. But there has to be um, in many ways, the European Enlightenment was its emphasis on truth as fact has diminished, our, diminished us so much. It has made us so flat and limited in what we can appreciate. It has really, really destroyed our imagination. We even tend to think, well, if it's imaginary, it's not real. It's not important. Whereas imagination is what created you know all the great literature in the world—it's all imagination. And but then somehow, if we include the Bible and the Buddha's suttas in that, then we get scared. Then we then we're all oh, nervous. You, oh, the Bible's not imagination. Uh, the Odyssey's imagination. The Bible's not. You see what I'm saying? We we ha- And I think that's a great challenge to. And I also think that there is this in Buddhism is the same thing as the two truths. We have, you know, we have sort of everyday things and then we have the profound Dharma. We've always had notions of two truths in Buddhism, which I think is very, very similar to wanting to know, on the one hand, what is the empirical factual history of Buddhism, and on the other hand, to use all of our stories. As uh, pointers, as pointers to the profound depth dimension that can never be captured in word and concept. Because it can never be captured in word and concept, it is easier to communicate it in story or poetry than any other form. And those deep, profound truths will never be captured in something empirical. See, part of what I'm trying to get people to see is that. Religion, history is a science. Religion is not a science. Religion is an art form. If you're going to make a distinction between the arts and the sciences, history is a science, but religion is not. I think that's one of the biggest mistakes modern people have made, is that we want religion to be true the way science is true. And it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. When you try to make that happen, you either lose your faith or you turn into a fundamentalist.
1: Mark? Yeah, I mean, I'm wondering about like just i I've often felt like uh, we're lying to particular religious beliefs in terms of this devotion to empiricism, materialism, linearism. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if that's like it's the not not recognizing how our conditioning—it's like that we take something as an absolute truth. This is our our sort of unconscious devotion, you know, like to that facts are true and everything else is not so important. And I'm wondering like that how that affects us and maybe calling that out, like sort of. In order to, John was talking about like this petri dish, like maybe in order to really engage the stories of Buddhism, the stories of Christianity, we have to acknowledge this that we're already very much fundamentalist materialists or empiricists.
0: That's the default mode of Western culture. Yeah. That's the default mode, that's what our educational system teaches us. What I'm suggesting is that we don't want to have a dichotomy between either we're empiricists or we um, value the story. Valuing the stories as literal events is still falling into the empiricist mode. And what what I'm really wanting to do is say we can have both. We can have accurate empirical history. And we can have all the stories um, as stories. I'm gonna, I am to—I think I have to do it this week. I was going to do it next week. One of the stories you have used over and over to teach this distinction, which to me is so clear and simple, and yet it's always so hard for people to get it. Uh, it comes from, um, how many you have heard of the book Black Elk Speaks? It's a wonderful book. And in the beginning of that book, there's a narrative uh, that Black Elk tells the the white person he's talking to. He tells him the the origin story of the sacred pipe, which in the Lakota culture is a symbol of how the whole world is. But the origin story of the sacred pipe is that um, once upon a time, and I think that is the proper way to begin, begin many religious stories, Once upon a time, um, two scouts went out to try to find game to hunt. And they were out on the prairie, and they saw this very beautiful woman. And um, one of them had, quote unquote, bad thoughts about her. And the other one said, "Don't, don't go there. She's a sacred person. But she came towards them and said, oh, you can do whatever you'd like to me. And so the monk, the the scout who had the bad thoughts went up to her, and a cloud enveloped the two of them. And when the cloud passed away, he was just a little pile of bones. That was all that was left of him. And she told the other scout, I will be coming to teach the people um, in three days. Some of these details I'm just making up, because I don't have them all in my memory. But in, in, uh, in three days, I'll be coming to teach the people. So get ready. So three days later, she came with the pipe, gave them the pipe, showed them how to use it, taught them what it meant, and then she left. And as she left, there are different versions of the story. In one version, as she left, she turned into a white buffalo. Uh, and those of you who remember that white buffalo calf that was born a few years ago somewhere in Iowa, I think, know how important white buffalo were, which don't seem to, the genes seem to have been lost, how important they were. But she turned into a white buffalo and then galloped away. So the woman gave them the pipe, told them how to use it, walked away from the camp, turned into a buffalo, and galloped away. And in other versions of the story, uh, she turned into the four colors of buffalo, not just one color. So Black Elk uh, narrates that story. And then he says to John Neihardt, the uh, person who's taking down his, his quotations, he said, this they say, and whether it happens so or not, I do not know. But if you think about it, you can see that it is true. There's the two modes. You think about it to see whether it's true empirically, and then you think about it to see its symbolic truth, the truth that cannot be brought down into plain words, but can only be pointed to, which is very much the way Buddhism works, at least as I understand it, that truth can never be captured in words. It can only be pointed to in words. Yet, of course, in terms of empirical description, words work perfectly fine. They just don't give us the meanings that we need, they don't give us the juice we need. Uh, who can live by science alone, you know? Or who could live by history alone? The danger is that in valuing stories, we're always trying to make them into history. And that's the genesis of fundamentalism. In valuing stories, we can't appreciate them as stories because of our heritage from the European Enlightenment, they have to be empirical. And then we and you know, we do crazy things like try to find the pieces try to find a piece of Noah's Ark. That would prove that would prove it. You know, or uh, try to find Jesus' shroud. That would prove it. Yes.
1: Um I, it's my recollection that on campus history is considered one of the humanities, not one of the sciences. And in fact, I think it's an open question, both among historians and, and the mm-hmm. other scientists social.
0: uh, To be science, right. So,
1: history is inevitably interpretive.
0: That's correct. And there aren't
1: any laws of history that we know of.
0: That's correct. Marx
2: tried to come up with some of these wrong. Um, So,
0: however, history is not literature. There's a big (coughs) distinction between history and literature.
1: Well, to the extent that it's a story, there may not be that
0: much. No, but. The point you're making is, is valid and very important because history is also determined by who's telling the history. European history is very different if you tell it from the point of view of Christians or you tell it from the point of view of Jews. Two very different stories. However, those two very different stories can be put together into one bigger story of how European history happened. Um, one of the things that, as a feminist, I've done a lot of work with is looking at Buddhist history interested in the question, who were the women and what were they doing? Who were they? Where were they? What was that about? So history is a subjective discipline in a certain way, but it is uh, it is not um, it is not literature.
1: When I don't disagree. What, yeah. what, what you stand on and what I personally stand on is that there is a real world outside of me that my mind doesn't create. And if that's the mm-hmm. case, and we're all living in the same real world, yeah. well, that's um, a, that's there a, is a single history, kind of a meta history going on, even if all of us have a slightly different yeah, that, take on what that history is. There, and
0: that's that's what I'm saying about Buddhism. There's a meta history of Buddhism. That we need to, uh, in our different schools and forms of Buddhism, look for. Um, now, the question of whether there's a real world outside that's not made by our mind—that's a point that uh, some Buddhists would say no. Um, you know, the human realm is a specific mental construction. The animal realm is a different mental construction. The hungry ghost realm—that. Um, that, I think Buddhists would tend to say there is a world, but different psychologies interpret that world quite differently. So um, I guess it's almost time to quit. And I'll take a couple more questions. I think what I want to do, because I didn't get through the five points in this article about what history, Buddhist history is about, and how empirical history and traditional Buddhist values are really on the same page. So, I want to have everybody um, read or reread this article for next week, looking at those five points. And we'll talk about those five points. And then I'll bring in some other material from another article I've written about the origins of fundamentalism. We'll do that next week, and the week after that, we'll start Nagarjuna. Do you think Buddhism is a
2: religion?
0: It depends on how you define religion. I mean, these things are all so much depends on how you define them. I don't, you know, I'm not, see that's why, because those words don't have any real exact meaning. I don't care about those questions. I don't care whether there was an actual historical Buddha or not, though I think there was. I don't care whether Buddhism is a religion or not, though I very easily use the term religion. Um, Because you know, I was taught in graduate school, definition of religion is ultimate concern, not necessarily having anything to do with God as one's ultimate concern, good old Talikian definition. So if that's the definition of religion, Buddhism fits. It doesn't have to be religion. The dictionary definition of religion as belief in God is obviously not correct, because it's only monotheists that believe in God. Most people didn't be, don't believe in God. I mean, the way we are programmed by the monotheistic hegemony of our culture is another whole issue to talk about.
2: You know, uh, this is, do you know Robert Coles is? Robert Coles? No. He, he wrote Children of Crisis? No. That's um, Well, anyway, he's, uh, he's among many things. He's a physician, and then he's a well-known writer. And he just wrote this whole series of book, books called Children of Crisis. Anyway, he teaches this class. Yes. Um, What is it called? Oh, the call for stories. And uh, you know, it's a literature class, and uh, he—you read all the (coughs) many of the great works. You know, and it's it's a um, very—it's a real serious class about
0: stories are
2: absolutely stories
0: are incredibly serious. Totally, they're just not necessarily about facts. What's so hard to understand about that? I don't know. And just because they're not about facts doesn't mean they're not true. You know, obviously, if somebody like Black Elk, who is, you know, not a Black Elk is not a Black Elk is Black Elk, if he can say, well, I doubt that this actually happened that way, surely the rest of us can afford to doubt whether. You know, Buddha was conceived as, from a, as a white elephant, or a white elephant entering the womb of his mother, and uh, took seven steps when he was born. And lotuses grew in the spot where his footprints had come. Um, even that he was born from his mother's side, and she still managed to survive seven days after, <laughs> you know, after such a such a birth ordeal. Um, many, many things like that. But all of these stories can be decoded. Now, one of the things I want to do next week, I think I will do this, is talk about the traditional Buddhist cosmology of Mount Meru at the center. This was the Buddhist picture of the world. And it was the Buddhist picture of the world until the 19th century. Uh, And it's still the picture of the world, according to some Buddhists who are really out of touch with the contemporary world. Mount Meru at the center, the four continents spreading out from Mount Meru the um, four islands in the intermediate directions. The whole thing is surrounded by a ring of iron mountains. And the Christian missionaries used to uh, debate with Buddhists that Buddhism couldn't be true because Mount Meru had never been discovered geographically. And a lot of Buddhists lost their Buddhist religion because of their literalism, their fundamentalism. And very recently, I was at a conference. I was talking about that particular story. And a Jain Jain gentleman said, well, that's the Jain picture. You know, Jain was that ancient religion, very similar to Buddhism. That's the Jain picture of the world, too. But he said the Dalai Lama just said, oh, the scriptures are wrong on this point. But the Jain pundits won't say that. The Jain pundits say, no, that is the accurate picture of the world. It's a flat earth. Someday science will catch up with our scriptures. Which is very strange. Um, I guess we're really out of time, aren't we? So this has been pretty lively. Uh, read read the, the five points in this article I really do want to talk about. Because this is what I think we're working with when we do Buddhist history. And one of the things I'm really trying to show is that there, if if we really understand what history is and what Dharma is, there's no conflict between them.
2: Are
0: there some They're on my website. If you have a, oh. if why don't
1: you say
0: that website, Rita? It's RitaMgross.com. Last name? Rita M. Gross. Dot just send that
1: and will give you the name.
0: And there's uh, on my uh, the, on my the right, you know, on the left-hand side, there's a something says writing samples. If you click on writing samples and then there's three articles there. One of them is titled Buddhist History for Buddhist Practitioners, you can download it.
1: And a couple other announcements. So if you came in a little late, we've decided to be seven to 8 30 starting next week. So and there's a yoga class that ends at six forty five. So if you want to come a little early, you won't. Thank you for listening.